When you're trading options, Fidelity has just what you need with straightforward but powerful tools to help you select a strategy and execute your ideas. And they offer a wide range of information and insights to help simplify your trading experience. Have a question? Ask it live during their small classes and coaching sessions. Need information? Check out their educational videos, articles, and webinars. See why it's easy to trade options your way at Fidelity. Start now at fidelity.com options iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined, as always, by Guy C. Adami. That C stands for Christopher, who will soon be on the Facebook, Instagram threads. Guy, did you spend the weekend on threads figuring out what's going on? We were out east, and I was trying to get to the application store, but the lines were out the frickin' door, so I was unable to get the threads app. But hopefully here out in the Morristown area, it'll be a little bit easier during the week. So I plan on, yes, I plan on getting that application soon. Dan. We are going to talk about the Twitter threads battle that's going on here. I think it was like the quickest app ever to 70 million or something downloads. Instagram or the meta made it very easy. If you were already an Instagram member, you could get to the text-based chat, use your own username, and then just kind of auto-follow everyone that you did on Instagram. We'll definitely chat about that because I do think it's pretty interesting. Guy, I know that you're on all the tech blogs. You're always waiting for these new social applications to come out. But to be very fair, this is the first big one since TikTok. And it's interesting like what it's going to mean for the landscape here. And then the backdrop of this kind of Zuck versus Elon cage match thing and everything. It's just interesting how this is all playing out. But let's hit what's going to go on this week in the markets. Let's preview a little bit. We have CPI on Wednesday and we have the start to Q2 earnings season on Friday afternoon with many of the large money center banks. The Fed here, guy, we can't stop talking about that in rates and the move that we've seen in rates since that hawkish pause that the Fed did in June. But we've also been noting that really earnings are going to take center stage here. And maybe some of the economic data outside the U.S. is going to start in being large U.S. multinationals. Let's start on the data. CPI is this important. I think it was a year ago that July or June print was 9.1. We're down at 4%. Is it market moving? And then let's focus on earnings a little bit. 
Yeah, I'd love to dismiss it and say it's not market moving, but we've learned that it is market moving. It has been obviously since that, I think it was 9.1, as you mentioned, was June of last, June or July, it doesn't matter. But here we are, either side of 4%. Also, what was market moving, interesting enough, is some of these jobs numbers. So what appears to be happening is the job market is still extraordinarily tight. Wages still stubbornly high. And I think that works to the Fed's detriment. I think they understand that. And I think one of the reasons they remain so hawkish is because they see what we see here. Yes, CPI has been coming down in pretty direct, pretty efficient way. It doesn't necessarily mean that's over either. So as important as CPI is, I would submit the job stuff is more important than you layer on top of that, the bank earnings and the earnings we're going to start to get into. And I think, again, it paints, I don't know, a cloudy picture at best. I'll say this as well, and we don't often talk about just single-day moves, but Friday's move in the broader market. Now, if you go back over the last couple months, I, and I don't have the data in front of me, but each Friday seems to have this rip-roaring effect from noon until the close where the market just levitates. We were on course to do exactly that, and something happened late in the day where the market reversed and closed effectively on the lows. Now, I don't want to make a big deal about it, but it is one data point that we're going to continue to watch. That was a change in trend. And what I've said for a while, Dan, and I'm not getting away from the Fed thing, but these zero days to expiry options work to the upside and everybody's thrilled. I have an inkling that something may have changed on Friday. It's going to be important to watch, especially if, to answer your question, that CPI comes in a little hotter than people anticipate. You use the term levitation. I think one of the reasons I think it's probably helped dampen volatility. We've talked about this a lot on the pod over the last few months. Nobody really knows what it means to the downside, really, since we've seen these things explode, and especially in sort of index options, right? We haven't seen a meaningful sell-off in the S&P 500. And if there was ever a reason to do that, and you look at the open interest on a daily basis that basically needs to be settled by day end, you do run the risk for the sorts of moves that you're talking about in Friday afternoon. And then the other thing is, as we think about now, we're entering into this period guide where investors take it to the bank. Four times a year, every quarter, we get earnings announcements. We get heightened volatility in and around these single stock names. And you have the potential for a bunch of these things to go in the same direction and start a trend. I think you and I are both in the camp right now is that where stocks are at, on the index level, where some of the biggest market leaders are, expectations are super high, right? And valuations have them priced to perfection. So if a whole host of things start coming together the 15 months since the inverted yield curve, all the lag that we talk about, the tightening, if we talk about just the move that we've seen in interest rates of late, if you do have high expectations, high valuation, rate expectations going higher, some of the global data we're seeing on the economic front, not particularly great, you run the risk of earning disappointments, which could be the sort of reason, right, to get the market selling off. And maybe you and I, who've been fighting this last leg or... <laughs> many of the last few legs of this rally in 2023. At some point, we're going to have a 5 to 10% sell-off this year. And I think all of the ingredients that we just mentioned, guys, could be that perfect cocktail for it. I agree with that. And yes, fighting it, I would say since late December, early January, in terms of just this grind higher in the market that to me defies logic. But again, we've talked about the lag effects, but I just want to come back before we sort of pivot. Those zero data expiry options, I understand that for 99% of the people, they have a vested interest for stocks to go higher. And if this, these options have been one of the catalysts for that to happen, 
people are going to say that's the greatest thing ever. And it may in fact be. Of course, the problem is my sense is these people that trade these things, the participants are probably market agnostic. And quite frankly, there's more money to be made on the downside because things go down faster than they go up. So if this pendulum were to swing and they start playing these zero date to expiry options other way, people are going to be up in arms and be, oh my God, look at the market. It's being disrupted by... It works both ways is my point. So enjoy it while it lasts to the upside, because just as quickly as it works to the upside, I think it could work to the downside. And your point about earnings, again, we have Bank of America, we'll talk about them, and I don't want to, I'm paraphrasing, but they're talking about stocks. I think they use the word collapsing. That You juxtapose that with Tom Lee, who was on Squawk Box earlier this morning, talking about a 100-point S&P rally tactically post a CPI number. So you have something for everybody this week, Dan. That's the way it goes, but don't forget, it goes the other way too. That is a quote from one of my favorite, probably guy in my Mount Rushmore of movies over the last 30 years. And you've never seen this movie, but it was True Romance. It was written by the great Quentin Tarantino and directed by Tony Scott. He did the Mission Impossible, by the way. Mission Impossible, I think, comes out this Wednesday. I think that's the 12th. You're going to line up for that. Damn straight. That I'll line up for. If you think I'm lining up at the Facebook application store or one of these people that queue two days ahead for Apple events, get a freaking life, people. Watch Mission Impossible. Back to you. Every time Robert Shaw's name comes up. I love Robert you, Shaw. You obviously we bring it up. Friday. We did. And you talked about how he stole Jaws and everything like that. You know, the movie Jaws is the reason for the term block. Buster. It was the first movie that people lined up around the block. And Blockbuster, as many of our readers know, our listeners know, our viewers know, that's where you still try to rent your movies. I know you're poking fun, which is fine. There is one Blockbuster, I think, that's still open in the Atos Unis. I'm not sure exactly where it is. I think it's out west someplace. But mark my words, you're going to see a renaissance for the blockbuster. There's another chapter left in that novel. I want to get to the banks, but I want to start out with a comment that Rosie, David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research had on his early morning with Dave Note. He's talking about expectations for S&P 500 companies for net profit margins. They're expected to fall to 11.4% below the 13% peak reach when the market was hitting its all-time highs in late 2021. Now, this is really interesting. Okay. So guy, I want to focus on two things here. All right, while inflation is down, so inflationary inputs for lots of companies, okay, they've come down year over year pretty dramatically, right? More than cut in half. We also have these dueling headlines, okay, of deflation in China, okay? So they just had their CPI reading, which was flat year over year. So we're talking about 4%, okay? On a sequential basis, that was down a lot, okay? So over there, China, this huge supposed engine for global growth, are suffering from deflation and they're stimulating. Over here, we've seen inflation come down a lot, but we are tightening, okay? So think about what that could mean for U.S. multinationals, what it could mean for profit margins. And if you ever wanted a reason to have stocks re-rate lower after this period of multiple expansion, it would be profit margins declining at a faster pace in a very uncertain domestic economic environment, but also Chinese. And I also want to go back to this point about the last time that China had this sort of deflationary slump, you got to go back to December of 2015. And if you remember 2015 and 2016, China's 
Economic uncertainty caused a whole heck of a lot of volatility in our stock market, but also in markets around the world and not just equities, but in commodities, in fixed income and in credit. I don't want to get into the weeds in this, but the yuan devaluation, what does that mean for obviously our stock market here? That's become one of these sort of, I don't want to say existential risks, but clearly add one to the list in terms of risks that are out there. And you make a great point. Profit margins are going to come down almost by definition. And let's just focus on the banks for a second. Think about the environment that they find themselves in. And again, higher regulations without question. Credit standards are tightening. The Probably the appetite for credit is waning. Now, there are going to be banks that went to this, obviously, and JP Morgan's been one of them. By the way, it's traded pretty well over the last week or so. I think it got up to 144. They seem to win. I'll say this, though. The regional banks don't win. These are the banks that are hamstrung. And if you think about the components of the IWM, the Russell, predominantly regional small banks, if the Russell starts to roll over, I think that would catch people by surprise. So you're talking about an environment, again, that does not lend itself to paying high multiples in terms of the valuations people are willing to pay for stocks right now. Yeah, no doubt. It's interesting that you brought this point up a lot about the banks, about what, what happens on the other end of this kind of regional banking crisis. But when you think about the benefit that a lot of the major money centers got as far as deposits, right? So now all of a sudden, though, we've seen a lot of lending contract, especially as rates have gone up as fast as they have or so. And so I just think it's interesting to keep a close eye on expectations for write-offs. There was an article in the FT overnight talking about, I, I think, an expected $5 billion that have been reserved for bad loans by the major money center banks, another maybe seven or eight or so expected for Q3. And these are the sorts of things, while those single digit billions guy, they're obviously very big numbers, right? But if you think about what is expected as far as the deceleration in loan growth, you start to have the acceleration in, in bad loans, right? In default, and then you see what's going to happen on the credit side as far as lending. It actually has the potential to, to really be a major headwind to economic growth, right? And so if we've spent all of this time over the last, call it 12 months or so, obsessing about when a recession is going to start, right? And we saw what happened with GDP in Q1. It was revised up, for, I think, from 1.2% to 2% or so. This would be the thing, what the banks have to say about lending and about defaults and about how much risk they're willing to take and where they think we are in the regional banking crisis, this could be really the thing that, that causes the economy to contract. And again, going back to the stock market should start to discount that at some point and not far off from those all-time highs in the S&P, you'd say well, that wouldn't be a bad place to be. But for all intents and purposes, it just doesn't seem to be something that investors in the stock market seem particularly focused on right now. Agreed. I absolutely agree. And again, we talk about passive investing all the time. I think a big part portion of this rally has been predicated on the back of that. I think, listen, I think some of the move in the banks, maybe people, again, rotating out of some of these high-flying tech names, although obviously you're not seeing it necessarily in the moves to the downside in these stocks, but the banks probably went to that. By the way, very quietly, and I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but energy, look at the move into the OIH. The OIH has gone from about 252-ish, I think at its low, maybe a little lower than that. I think we got up to about 307 or so on Friday. So you've had this stealth rally in some of the oil service names. So many cross currents here, but again, just hammer home your point. 
this is not a particularly favorable environment for the banks. Again, the inversion just went to, I think, 105 basis points. But think how quickly it snapped back down to about 88 or so basis points. Again, I would thought that twos, tens could get to 125 inversion. Maybe that still happens, or maybe we petered out a bit. But as Danny Moses said, as you have said, as Elizabeth Young has said, it's not the inversion, the steep inversion that concerns me. It's when we start to go the other way that things get dicey. And that's what we're seeing right here. So again, the landscape, I understand the price suggests that everything's great. 4,400 S&P, 10% or so off the all-time high. People say, you know what? We've weathered the storm. I would submit the storm is on the horizon. Yeah, so interesting. There's a couple dueling calls out there by prominent strategists. Tom Lee is expecting a rally in the S&P 500, another 100 points, about 4,500 or so post-June CPI. That would be on Wednesday morning. And then you have Michael Hartnett of Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. He says that stocks are headed for a big collapse. That's after this big rally or so. Now, I want to just talk about Tom Lee's call for a second. So Tom has been obviously very bullish this year. I would also say that he was very bullish all of last year, right? So he never really changed his tune in 2022. He looks like a hero in 2023. But despite the fact that the S&P is up 15%, the equal weight S&P is up a third of that, right? If you think about how much damage was done in the broad market in 2022, to me, I don't know. I like the fact that he's not calling for new highs guy. I feel like he's getting, as this rally gets longer in the tooth, if you think about what 100 points on an S&P 500 at 4,400, we're talking about that could be one day, right? Like that sort of thing. Now on the flip side, it's interesting. If you were an FA financial advisor at Bank of America and last or two weeks ago, remember we had Savita Subramanian, she's a strategist over at Bank of America. And she, the headline was, and she sat on the desk on Fast Money with us. And we talked about it on the podcast afterwards, that she's never been more bullish on stocks. That didn't mean that she wants to buy stocks right here. But if she's looking out 10 years on all the inputs that she uses, never been more bullish. And then you wake up two weeks later and you see this, this headline from Hartnett, who's also, he's the chief equity strategist at B of A Merrill Lynch. And he said they're expected for a big collapse. It's really hard for retail clients to get their arms around some of this stuff. Make some Help, help me make some sense of this. When you have the biggest, one of the biggest money center banks in our country, which has a huge bullhorn, making these sorts of dueling calls or this sort of dueling messaging from big strategists at their shops. On the one hand, I admire it because at least not then are all speaking with the same voice. It's not everybody gets in a room and they take a sort of a poll, who's bullish, who's bearish, and democracy wins. And then they all sort of line up behind that. So I admire the fact that Savita made the call that she made. We can dis we can debate whether or not it's accurate or not or whether it's come to fruition. But I also admire the fact that there's somebody else from there saying the exact opposite. We say it all the time. That's what makes markets. To answer your other part of the question, it is frustrating for investors and traders alike when they see a call from one person in the bank and then counter completely a week and a half or two weeks later. We used to see that at Goldman Sachs all the time in terms of maybe what their commodities desk was saying, as opposed to when some of their strategists might be saying about the same thing. And it becomes extraordinarily confusing. But then you think about the market itself, and that's how confusing it is, I think, for all of us. So it's not that, I don't think it's that off base to have dueling banjos in terms of the call. And in terms of Hartnett's call, this is interesting because he said, he used the word collapse and he signaled it with unemployment going higher, Fed funds, I think, getting to 6%-ish. We're still a ways away from that, but we're probably somewhat on the precipice. He also said something that sort of harkens back to Jaws. The market will collapse 
but it won't last. It's like that scene when the mayor's on the beach and they close the beach. Everybody's up in arms. And he says, only for a couple of days, only for a few days to try to assuage some of the concerns. So I think that sort of end of that comment or end of that note saying the sell-off won't last is his way of maybe throwing a bone to the bullish side of the equation. But Again, I don't know how that's pretty tactical call right there. It's funny. I think both of these calls, Tom Lee's call is tactical. And I would say that if, if you've been riding the Tom Lee train in 2023 and you like this call to 4,500, then I think you look to define your risk in a low vol environment. There's plenty of index options, whether they be on ETFs or the index that you can use to find your risk. But, but remember, he's literally playing for a two and a half percent tactical move that doesn't really seem worth my time in that regard and then on on the hard net side i thought this was an interesting comment investors will keep the market on an upswing from momentum to contrarian plays from deflation to inflation assets from developed markets to em stocks from no landing plays to hard landing plays so the point here is that as sentiment shifts there'll be rotations right and so that's one of the things that we've seen one of the reasons that to the downside guy and you made this point many times in 2022 the sell-off seemed very orderly, right? They did crescendo at some lows and then we'd have reversals and then we'd go back up and we retrace a part of the move and then we'd sell off in an orderly fashion. And you made the point a couple of occasions, it's like the panic seemed like on the upside, right? The short covering, you just mentioned energy, the OAH, oil services. There are plenty of kind of values areas out there that have underperformed this year. Banks would be one of them. Energy would be another. And you're likely to see some money move into them, maybe maybe emerging markets also. Do you think that rotation will keep like the market from going back and re-challenging a 3,600, meaning the correlations won't go to one where everything sells off. I think that's central to the bull thesis is that you're going to continue to see the rotation from some of the high flyers to some of the laggards. And that's actually a positive thing. And then people start talking about market breadth and now they're, the leadership has changed and it's moving over. And I understand that argument. I don't necessarily buy that argument because again, the stocks that have led, those seven to 10 stocks that have led, you think about the size of those names, if they were to start to have a meaningful move to the downside, it doesn't necessarily matter if the money's going to make its way into some individual names. The sheer weight of those names should, in fact, pull the broader market down. So listen, I get the bull case. I understand people's want to be bullish. And again, at 4,400, given everything that we've endured, Maybe that's the right way to be. But then I see is all the things we talked about, all the things on the horizon, we're coming into earnings. The Fed seems to be as hawkish as they've been in quite some time. You mentioned China. Things are grinding to a halt there. Europe's obviously a bit of a mess. Things are slowing here, although it's not manifesting itself in employment, which makes the Fed's job that much more difficult. And valuations are stretched. So how much more room is left in this thing, I think is a question you all have to ask yourself. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. 
iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Last thing we got to talk about before we get out of here, it is pretty astounding. So last week on the desk on Fast Money, we were talking about threads. This is Meta Platforms. This is the owner of Facebook, the owner of WhatsApp, and the owner of Instagram launching this basically a Twitter clone, right? And we know that this is something that Meta has done a fantastic job of copying things over the years, right? So they started with the blue page, then they moved to mobile, they bought Instagram, they turned that into something very big. But then when they saw stories over there at Snap, they copy that. And then they really thwarted their growth there. Then when they saw TikTok come with short form user generated video, they copy that and that's reels, right? And so all of a sudden here, Twitter gets acquired last year. We don't need to go into all the issues as far as who the owner is and what the experience has turned into and what advertisers have done there. But Instagram, they introduced this this product, Threads, that I think uh, as of this morning, they have over 100 million users. So last week on Fast Money, we were talking about this, and I said it very emphatically, and Amanda put it out on our first thread, or at least my first thread. I was like, Twitter's over. It's done. They got to about 330 million monthly active users. That number is declining. Their ad revenue is down 40%. Elon wants to charge for subscription. Nobody's paying. I literally think they have less than Twitter blue, less than 1% of their users. And the thing I went on to, I, I don't go on. I got kicked off on April 1st. I don't go on. I have been going on to see like what sort of meltdown Elon's having. Linda Yaccarino, the new CEO who was just put in place a month ago, brought over from NBC Universal, an ads guru, supposedly. You got to go see, if the guys can put it in the show notes, her tweet on the day that threads came out, it's pathetic. It's like this most embarrassing thing about the Twitter community is about you and blah, blah, blah. All the most interesting people, it seems, have migrated. I mean that sincerely over to threads. And here's the thing. They don't have to monetize this. They bought WhatsApp eight or nine years ago for $20 billion. They're still not monetizing it. They make over $125 billion in revenue across all of their other platforms. All they need to do is create a great user experience that people are dissatisfied with Twitter and other platforms and keep them there and have it integrated with their other platforms. And it's lights out. So I'm just curious, guys, and I know you and I were joking about it, but this is not insignificant, okay? 
So when you think about Twitter's revenues were maybe going to be 5 billion, they're going to be much less, okay, this year. And think about that, that Facebook is generating over $100 billion. It's over. Zuck snapped his finger and Twitter's lights out. Now, we're going to know what it means for Twitter because it's a private company. What do you think this does to the meta story? Meta's up 150%. It still trades cheapest amongst these large mega cap tech stocks. If, and they're not going to turn, they're not going to turn on monetization. I don't think anytime soon, but this is basically a call option on a new platform. I think that's exactly right. And listen, again, it, we don't want to talk about Twitter because it doesn't help anybody in terms of it not being a publicly traded company. But what does it mean for Facebook? Think about when Facebook topped out. It was probably the fall of 2021. I, I, if memory serves, may, may, you probably know exactly, but I think it was close to a $400 or so stock. And then you saw that precipitous decline. The decline was all pretty much self-inflicted wounds, if you think about it, because the trajectory prior to that was outstanding. Facebook was on cruise control. Obviously, a lot of things happened in the wake of that. Self-inflicted, obviously the sell-off in the broader market we saw last year, but here we are now. Your point about valuation is spot on. Despite the move from, what did it trade down to, $89 or so? Despite the move from 89 to 289 it's still a relatively inexpensive stock, number one. Number two, they've gotten away from that whole meta thing, which they weren't able to explain for people who were unable to understand it in the first place. So they seemingly have gotten away from that, which again, has probably calmed the waters for Facebook investors. And now they have other things they can start to monetize and leverage. I think the trajectory is still higher. If you look at a chart, by the way, 330 or so, which is where we broke down from meaningfully in January of 2022, seems to be sort of a bullseye. So this stock can continue to levitate just on valuation alone. It, it's interesting. And again, I think that this move has been astounding. The stock went from, to your point, just under 400. I think it was 380 when they articulated this broad new vision for the company. And clearly they saw something that they were worried about them for, that, for them to make that sort of pivot guy. But from 380 to 90 at its lows last year. And now here we are at 290 or so. Yeah, it can continue to levitate. I think it used Carter Braxton worse speak. The, as unchecked as some of these moves are, it, it looks like they've absolutely gone parabolic in some of these names. Obviously, we've talked about NVIDIA, Tesla of late. Apple seems to be one where I just don't know who's left to buy that. And if you think of the multiple expansion there, while Meta is still cheap. I think a bunch of this rally of late probably has to do with threads as a call option. So I think you want to be careful with some of these things. But the last point I'll just make about Twitter is that, again, this goes back to Elon Musk, brought a lot of equity partners into his take private of the company last year. And those folks are going to be marking down their Twitter stake fairly dramatically. I think Fidelity has already marked it down by half. And then if you think about the fact that there's a bunch of banks that lent him $13 billion to help finance that deal. And so I would not be surprised to see him sell some stock in Tesla. He said that he wasn't going to do that again. Supposedly, there's a big block of SpaceX that the company's looking to sell some stock. And it's probably him selling some secondary to finance this. But like Twitter sounds like it's literally going into the financial tank here. So I don't know. Check us out on the threads. I think we have it. You can look for Rich Social Media there. I am at Dan S. Nathan. I have not been posting on Twitter for a while, but I will try threads out and see how it goes. We'll give that one a crack. All right, guy, we covered 
a lot of ground here. Any final words for the people here? I'm going to be off the risk reversal media platform for the rest of the week. I'm on vacation. So I'm really glad we got to start the week off like this and take a look ahead. I think if you want to be an armchair technician, take a look at what we call engulfing patterns. A lot of stocks have these engulfing patterns potentially to the downside. I understand it's early in the month of July, but you think about towards the end of June, first week of July, and then some of the subsequent moves we've seen, that could be a bit of a catalyst for you technicians out there. So we'll probably start to talk about that this sort of stealth rally in some of these energy names is worth watching. And gold continues to hold in there as well. So those sort of things that I'm watching this week. And we'll see if Tom Lee's 100-point tactical call on the S&P post-CPI comes to fruition as well. That's it. I really appreciate you guys spending the time with us. Guy Adami, by the time you're listening to this, he will be on with Danny Moses on our Sirius XM radio show that we do every Monday live at 12 noon. I wish I could be there. And then you're going to be with Carter Braxtonworth and Liz on the market call Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 1 p.m. People go to our YouTube channel and check that out. And then you're going to finish off the week with Danny Moses on the tape, the Friday edition. And then I'll be back next week. Enjoy yourself, folks. Thanks for spending your time with us. It's going to be a busy week. Tune in to all the risk reversal media platforms, threads included. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.